Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. This morning we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, the end of the chapter. Please give your attention to the word of God. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's kind of a dark passage for a Christmas sermon, isn't it? But that's intentional in this context. We are looking at the hopeful prophecies that are given in the beginning of the prophecy of Isaiah. We talked last week how we began with that great promise in chapter 7, verse 14, that we hear all the time at this time of year. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what we're doing, we are putting this in its context. We're looking at what connects that great prophecy of the birth of Christ in chapter 7 with the other great prophecy of the birth of Christ that we have in chapter 9, verse 6, which we'll be looking at next week. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are bright, happy, joyful Christmas verses, but... My intent, really, through these, this three-week study is to put them in its original context, its historical context, and show that the light of these great promises came into the midst of a time of great darkness for the people of God. If you remember last week, we talked about how these prophecies were received during a time of severe spiritual and political crisis for the Old Testament people of God. This all took place over 700 years before Christ was born. 
And during this time, of course, God's people were divided. You had the northern tribes, which were called Israel, the northern kingdom. And then you had Judah, the southern kingdom, with the capital city, Jerusalem. God's people were divided. And the world power in that day, the evil empire, the brutal evil empire of the day was the kingdom of Assyria to the east. And as we saw last week, Assyria was on the verge of sweeping through Palestine and putting all of its people into subjection under its iron boot. The northern kingdom of Israel, that part of God's people, did not put their trust in the Lord, but instead they put their trust in an unholy alliance with their neighboring kingdom of Syria. And that Syria-Israel alliance, as we saw last week, had attempted to invade, had actually invaded Judah in order to try to bring Judah into that alliance as well so that all three of the nations could protect themselves, hopefully, against Assyria as it descended from the north and the east. We also saw last week that King Ahaz of Judah also refused to trust in the Lord, and he put his trust, oddly enough, in Assyria itself. He made a declaration, a pledge of submission to this wicked kingdom of Assyria to serve them in hopes of being protected by Assyria instead of being protected by the Lord. But in spite of all this unbelief on the part of the people who were called the people of God, God is still gracious. God is persistent. He comes back to him again and he sends his prophet Isaiah with a message, with a word for his people. He says, I will deliver you, in spite of your lack of faith, I will deliver you from this Israel-Assyria alliance which is about to invade your borders. But Ahaz had already made up his mind that he was going to put his trust in man instead of in the Lord. And he refused. And so, really in anger, in judgment, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And that's that great hopeful sign of 714. The virgin is going to be with child. She's going to give birth to the one who will be called Emmanuel. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But judgment and darkness would descend upon the land during the time in between. Now, if you were to think of Israel and Judah together, even though they're separate nations, you think of them together, they really were the church of the Old Testament. We, I often speak of them in that way. They were the church. They were the, the identifiable people of God, the visible kingdom of God on earth. They were God's people. And if you think of Israel and Judah as a church, boy, the church was pretty messed up in those days, wasn't it? They were divided severely. They were fighting among themselves. They were copying the beliefs and practices of their wicked neighbors. And they were rejecting the very word of God that was given to them. Kind of sounds like the church today, doesn't it? Divided, fighting among ourselves, copying the beliefs and the practices of the world around us, and rejecting the word of God. The church is also messed up today. And that will always be the case. It always has been the case. During the times of the scriptures and ever since, the church has been a bit of a mess. 
Jesus promised it would be that way. He said there will be tares among the wheat, or maybe better said there will be wheat among the tares in the church, depending on what era of history you're looking at. There will always be sheep and goats among the visible people of God. And superficially, it'll be difficult to discern between them. Those who profess faith scattered among those who really have faith in the Lord. That concept that Jesus promised us, that's the idea of the faithful remnant. The faithful remnant is a theme that you find from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end of Scripture. There's always going to be a visible group of people that identify themselves as God's people, but among that visible group of people, there will be a faithful remnant who truly trust in the Lord. And you need to understand that lest you be discouraged by the messes that we see in the visible church. Most of chapter 7 and and the beginning of chapter 8 was addressed to the visible church of the Old Testament in Isaiah's day to the people of God in in, in mass, with Ahaz as their point man, so to speak. But here at the end of chapter 8, this is addressed to the faithful remnant, to those who really had faith among the nation of Israel and Judah. This theme of the faithful remnant, matter of fact, just to show you how clearly Isaiah carries the theme through, let me just have you turn over to chapter 10, verse 20. Look at what it says there. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Do you remember last week I said that Isaiah had two sons that are spoken of in in these chapters? Shear Jashub and Meher Shalahashbaz. Shear Jashub, remember what his name meant. It meant a remnant shall return. That's how crucial, that's how important that message was to Isaiah's message, is that God is going to be faithful, that no matter how dark things may appear among the visible people of God, God is going to preserve for himself a faithful remnant. There will always be, as there was in Elijah's day, 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. God will preserve a people who hold to him by faith. And Isaiah really here becomes the point man and the spokesman in these verses for this faithful remnant. He was the leader of the faithful remnant. And he says in verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. That's the attitude of the faithful remnant in dark times. So what are the marks? If we can't superficially, and none of us knows the hearts of of the people in the churches, but there are some fruit. Back in that passage we read in our responsive reading, it talks about fruit that are born among those who truly have spiritual life. And so what are the marks? What are the identifying characteristics of the faithful remnant? Because here at the end of chapter 8, it begins by the Lord calling upon Isaiah and the rest of the faithful remnant not to walk in the way of this people. So we should be able to distinguish, if we look carefully, the difference between the faithful remnant and the larger church. And just for simplicity, and I, I understand I'm talking about the church as God sees it, not as any of us can see it. But the church is made up of wheat and tares, sheep and goats. 
And so I'm going to call, to keep the language consistent, I'm going to call the, 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 those that believe and trust in the Lord and are truly born again and walk by faith, they're the faithful remnant. I'm going to call the rest the apostates. So you've got the remnant and the apostates, and they're intermingled until Christ comes again in the visible church of God. So what are the, what are the identifying characteristics of the remnant? The first one that is alluded to in this passage is that the faithful remnant submits to the word of God. The faithful remnant submits to the word of God. Look at verse 11. Isaiah begins by saying, For the Lord spoke thus to me. That's a pretty radical statement. Try standing out on a street corner in downtown State College and saying, The Lord has spoken thus to me. That kind of talk is not very popular. The idea that God has spoken to his people, and that we can know truth because God has spoken to us. And really, that is, I don't care what your religion, I don't care what your philosophy is, that's the foundational question to everything you know. The foundational question, actually two questions, first of all, has God spoken to man? Has God spoken? And then secondly, to whom has he spoken? You've got to answer those questions in order to have a philosophy or a worldview. Has God spoken, and to whom has he spoken? And Isaiah says, thus the Lord has said to me, and he has given me this word to give to you. And that's what we see all through the the book of Isaiah, is that the true faithful remnant responds to the word of God when it is given with faith, humility, acceptance, and submission. That's how the faithful remnant responds to the word of God. In verse 16, it says something actually kind of unusual, doesn't it? It says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. He's talking about the revelation given through the law and the prophets. He's saying it actually might be actually precisely referring to the prophecy given through Isaiah, but it's true in both cases. Bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. What well, helps to just think about how communication was done between the king and his subjects in former eras. If a king made a decree, he would have that decree written very carefully, word for word, as he intended, onto some kind of a parchment, and then it would be rolled up. And once that parchment was rolled up with the decree printed on it, on the inside, it would, they would take a glob of hot wax and seal that roll of paper together and then the king would take his signet ring with his symbol on it and he would impress it in that hot wax to leave the symbol of the king into it to impress it into that wax then it would be handed off to a courier of some sort who would take the king's decree out to whoever the intended audience was and how did they know that when it gets to the people that the decree was intended for, how would they know that it was exactly what the king intended? How would they know it wasn't tampered with? That nothing was added to it or taken away from it? It would be because the seal wasn't broken. And so that's what Isaiah is alluding to here. That God's word has been given. All of the revelation that God intended for his people in this time, in this crisis, had been given. Nothing is to be added to it or taken away from it. And the faithful remnant understands that. That God's word is not to be added to or taken away from. 
That's the way from beginning to end of Scripture. It's interesting that this explicit statement is given at the beginning of Scripture in the Pentateuch, in the middle of Scripture in the book of Proverbs, and it's also given at the very end of the book of Revelation. Here, and all three of them say essentially this same thing, and I'll give you the one from Deuteronomy chapter 4. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. God has spoken. He has spoken through his prophets and through his apostles. And his word is given and we are to receive it at face value as the word of God to submit to it, to not question it, to not add to it, to not take away from it. Do you notice how the apostates in the visible church of Isaiah's day respond? They had rejected the revelation of God through his prophet. And so, where do they go for truth? They're scared. They're in a crisis. The future is unknown. The future looks dangerous. They need somebody to speak to them from the spiritual realm. They need some vision of the future that can give them hope. Where do they go? Well, Isaiah says they're going to the mediums and the necromancers, the soothsayers, the witches, those that have always been around who claim the ability to speak to the dead or to speak to spirits in the spiritual realm. Why, do they, why are those kinds of people popular? Because everybody needs somebody to speak from the spiritual realm to us. And if you reject the true God and his revelation, you're left with mediums and necromancers and soothsayers and witches. And that's what the people were doing. Isaiah says they chirp and mutter. He's making fun of them because they're incantations to try to connect with the spiritual realm. All the mumbo-jumbo. And I think he mentions it to say, how great is the contrast with the very word of God? God doesn't speak to us in chirps and mutters. God speaks to us clearly in his word. But you have rejected him. God's law explicitly, over and over, forbid the people of God from going to mediums and soothsayers and necromancers. Because to do that is to reject the word of God. To say that the word of God is not enough. Or that the word of God is wrong. I want you to understand that this is the most important issue in any church, in any era, the church of the Old Testament or the church of the New Testament, the church in the day of the apostles or the church today. It's still the foundational issue. Has God spoken and through whom has he spoken? It started, the challenging of the word of God started all the way back in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve ever even committed their first sin. It's when Satan whispered in Eve's ear and said, Has God really said? Has God really said? And that whisper of Satan has persisted from that day on, and it's very loud out there in the world today. I grew up in a liberal church. We all come from Multiple church backgrounds. I love the variety of where God has called us together here to be a part of Oakwood. And as we have come from our church backgrounds, we've had to process, well, what, what about what I was taught is really true and what isn't? What, what teachings of the church do I embrace and which ones do I reject as being 
misinterpretations or falsehoods from my past. For me, having been raised in a church that was liberal in the sense that it did not respect the full authority of the God, of the Word of God, that it did add to the Word of God, it did take away from the Word of God, and the most important thing it took away from the Word of God was the very gospel itself. When I truly heard the gospel and understood the gospel by sources outside of the church that I was raised in, I immediately became angry. Angry that churches that bear the name of Jesus Christ, that bear the name Christian, would not teach me the word of God, would not give me the very heart of the word of God, which is the message of the gospel. That's why I stand in pulpits today. That's the fire that drives me, is that God showed me that his word is absolutely true, absolutely inerrant, absolutely sufficient for all things. And there's so many out there in the name of Christianity right now, as I speak, that deny that. The word of God is true, and now we know that the word of God is sealed. It's complete. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing must be taken away from it. In Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. When Jesus came and completed the work that is necessary for salvation, the revelation from God was complete, and the word of God was sealed. The canon was complete. We have God's word. It's all that we need to know truth, to know what to believe about God and ourselves, to know what to believe about our practices, our traditions. And yes, we will disagree in our interpretations of it. I'm not talking about those kinds of differences. I'm talking about people who add to the word of God and take away from the word of God. That is a characteristic of the apostate church. But in the remnant, in the faithful remnant, the word is sealed. It's complete. It's sufficient. And you know you're a part of the remnant because you respond to the word of God in faith and submission. In verse 20, it says, To the teaching and to the testimony, if they, the apostates in Isaiah's day, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. The word of God is the light that has come into the darkness of this fallen sinful world. It is the only light. There is no hope outside of the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ to which it points. And the first step when God begins to judge his church, when a church becomes too apostate, the first step of judgment, historically speaking, is always for God to begin to withdraw his word. That happened back in Amos' day. Prophet Amos, this is actually, actually before the time of Isaiah. It says in Amos, this is the message that Amos had for the church of his day, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God hides his face in the language of Isaiah 8. And his word is sealed up among the remnant, but for the apostate who have persistently, repeatedly rejected the word of God, God begins to withdraw his word. 
And so that's the first characteristic of the remnant, is that they receive and submit to the word of God. Secondly, the remnant fears the Lord and not man. The faithful remnant fears the Lord and not man. In verse 12, the Lord tells Isaiah and the remnant, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The difference between the faithful remnant and the apostate church is what they fear. Is the church driven by the fear of God or is it driven by the fear of man? Now, the Lord mentions conspiracy here. What conspiracy could he be referring to? Well, when you think of Ahaz and the apostates, and that's actually a good name for a band if you're thinking about putting a band together. (laughs) Obviously a rock and roll band, but Ahaz and the apostates. But when you think about the apostate church, In the day of Isaiah, Ahaz and the apostates were no doubt putting the word out there that that, that Isaiah was a traitor, that he wasn't supporting the throne. The prophets often got that accusation that they were conspirators, they were guilty of treason, and some of them paid for their, 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 with with their lives, they paid for that accusation. E.J. Young, in his commentary on this passage, says, Throughout the history of the church, those who have sought to call the church back to her God-given mission have been treated as troublemakers. And that's abundantly true. Now, I want to be fair to Ahaz and the apostates, that if you just look with your eyes, they had a lot to really fear. They should have been afraid in terms of the human, human situation that they were in, the crisis that they were facing. The Israel-Syria alliance was far more powerful than Judah was in that day. And the wicked nation of Assyria was far more powerful than even the Israel-Syria alliance. And so, humanly speaking, they didn't have much hope. But Isaiah was sent to call them to faith in the invisible God. The God who is on the throne, not over, only over nations, but over the entire universe. The God who is sovereign, who does as he pleases. The God who has all power to deliver in every situation. God, Isaiah was called, sent to call the people of God to put their faith in this invisible God. In verse 13 it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And there you get to that identifying attitude of the people of God, that they live in the fear of the Lord. Don't ever lose that element of trembling before the presence of God. Yes, we believe that we are God's children who cry to him, Abba, Father, who are intimately in relationship with him through grace, through, and we're completely forgiven, and we don't need to fear his judgment anymore because of what Christ has done for us. But don't ever lose that ability to tremble in his presence because he is so powerful. He's so infinite. He's so glorious. He is so transcendent that we tremble before his holiness even as we love him and are intimately in relationship with him. Isaiah saw the Lord in chapter 6. And when he saw the Lord, he saw him high and lifted up on the throne over the universe and the angels around him were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah fell on his face before him. Don't ever lose that element of true faith in your relationship with God. 
The fear of the Lord is what cures the fear of man. Because if you fear the Lord, then you understand that the Lord has all power over every other authority and force in the world. Greater is he who is in you, John says, than he who is in the world. And an indicator of increasing apostasy in the church is a decrease in the fear of the Lord among God's people. An indicator of apostasy in the church is a decrease in the fear of the Lord among the people of God. God becomes so small in an apostate church. I read this week about a study that was done. It was called the National Study of Youth and Religion. And what they did is they went out and interviewed thousands. Sociologists went out and interviewed thousands upon thousands of American teenagers, all kinds of questions about what their philosophy and religious views were, and then tried to summarize that, bring that all together in a nutshell. Well, what is the current religious view of the teenagers in America? Let me give you, first of all, one of their summary statements. They said, A significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but has rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And then they go on to define, well, what is this moralistic, therapeutic deism? And they give five points. Let me give them to you here. First, God exists, and he created and ordered the world, and he watches over it. Okay, good so far. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught by the Bible, as well as most other world religions. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when he's needed to help resolve a problem. And then fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. That is what the sociologist summarized is the current view of Americans' teenagers. And honestly, that, kind of, that sounds like America civil religion to me. It's been around for a long time. It's what we've taught our children in this country. And it is a false religion. It's a false gospel. It is a lie from the pits of hell. And yet, that is the religious perspective of the youth in our country. As one person said, it's kind that the God in in therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism, the God in that in that faith, is kind of a cross between a genie and a butler. A genie in a bottle that will pop up whenever you need him, and a butler who is there to make you happy and feel good about yourself. Or maybe in this season of year, it'd be better to think of him as like Santa Claus, who works. 24-7, 365 days a week, a year, instead of just one day a year. Whoever that God is of moralistic therapeutic deism, he is not the God of the scriptures. He is not the holy, holy, holy God that Isaiah bowed before. So the remnant, the remnant receives and submits to to the word of God and all of its authority, and the remnant lives in the fear of the Lord. The third characteristic is that the remnant has the presence of God in their midst. The remnant has the presence of God in their midst. In verse 14, there's a very subtle little promise. You may have missed it if you read through the passage quickly. It says, where the fear of the Lord is, he will become a sanctuary for those people. 
he will become a sanctuary. That's another reference to the Emmanuel promise. You see, it's the Emmanuel promise that ties all this together. God with us is what Emmanuel means. And God says, if you accept my word and you live in the fear of the Lord, I will dwell in your midst. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. It's interesting that the word sanctuary is used there because in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament church, the sanctuary is a very clear thing. It was the tabernacle. It was the temple. It was the representation of the very God dwelling in the midst of his people. It was the temple where blood sacrifices were offered, where an innocent substitute had his blood shed so that sinful worshipers could be forgiven and accepted into the presence of a holy God. It was where a priest would administer that blood of atonement so that God's people could be forgiven and that their worship could be accepted. And God says, I will be a sanctuary for you if you accept my word and you live in the fear of the Lord. On the other hand, this passage goes on to say, for the apostates, he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You can't even imagine how disheartening those words would be to a person in the Old Testament church of Israel or Judah if they had ears to hear. Because all through the Old Testament, God is called a rock. Doesn't sound like a very complimentary thing to call your God, but it's used over and over in the Old Testament because it speaks to his unchanging nature, his unchanging faithfulness, his unchanging love, his unchanging power. He is immovable in his purpose, and his purpose for his people is always good. And so God is seen as a rock, a rock that's called a refuge and a shelter for God's people, a place where they are safe in the presence of this holy God even as they fear him. But, he says, to those who reject his word and who leave him in unbelief, he will become not a rock who's a foundation upon which to build their lives or a shelter for them from protection, but he will be for them a stone that causes them to stumble and to fall, and great will be that fall. He describes in verses 21 and 22 what that fall will look like. What a progression is given there. And this is really what happened in Israel and Judah over the next century or so. Hunger, poverty, distress, thick darkness, and the gloom of anguish. And how did the apostates respond? Did they get on their knees and say, oh, we've been so wrong, forgive us for our lack of faith? No, it says they shake their fist at heaven and speak contemptuously against the king and, the God, and, and against their own God. And there, but for the grace of God, go any of us. Because that's what happens when a heart becomes hard. And really, what's described there in verses 21 and 22 is really a depiction of hell, isn't it? Darkness, thick darkness, separated, alienated from God and all that is good, and shaking your fist eternally at the God who has put you under judgment for your sin. But God will be a sanctuary for those who believe his word, trust in him, and live in the fear of the Lord. Well, who is this sanctuary? Who is the sanctuary for the people of God, the true remnant, and the stone of offense, the rock of stumbling, and the stone of offense to the apostate? Who is that? According to the New Testament, it's said over and over and over, 
directly responding to these prophecies, it's Jesus Christ. He is this God. He is the sanctuary, the dwelling of God among men. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word there literally is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He became our sanctuary. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. But the New Testament scriptures also make it clear that he is the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling. Peter puts these two images together. He says, for the faithful remnant, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the rock upon which you can build your life and in which you can take shelter. But he goes on to say that he is also that rock of offense, that stone of stumbling. Let me read to you the passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. He's describing Jesus Christ. So your relationship to Jesus Christ is what makes the difference between the apostates and the true faithful remnant. What will you do with Jesus Christ? I was thinking about this distinction between those who profess something and those who truly believe it while they profess it. And I was thinking about a video that was passed around. I'm sure many of you saw it. It was kind of those viral videos over the last few weeks of uh, a, a, the latest flash mob. Have you seen this one where the U.S. Air Force Band uh, did a flash mob, one of those impromptu concerts in the middle of the National Air and Space Museum? And, you know, how they all kind of filter in one by one and keep playing, adding to the group. And eventually you get this huge orchestra playing in the middle of the Air and Space Museum, and then they had these choirs, singers come up, and they, they, there's several lever, levels to that museum, and they're up on the, all these upper levels, and they start singing great Christmas uh, hymns, songs. And the whole thing gets to this great rousing ending at the end where they sing joy to the world. And I was caught up in it. It's like, wow, this is so moving. This is so powerful. This is so great. And it was. But in the midst of being thrilled by it, all of a sudden I became very sad. Because as the camera panned around to all the different faces, I just couldn't help but think how few of those people really meant what they were singing. How few people actually meant what the words of joy to the world says. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let the earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. I'm sure some there really believed it, and they were part of the remnant, and they were professing it by faith. But I kept thinking, how many of these people, if they were asked to sign a statement with those statements in it, they would would never mouth those words. They would despise those words. I couldn't help it. That's so true of so much of the American church in general. They profess the words, but their heart isn't in it. They They might even despise the words of the great Christmas hymns that we sing at this time of year. The difference between the remnant and the apostates all comes down to what one does with the Jesus Christ of the scriptures. And I intentionally say the Jesus Christ of the scriptures because there's a lot of other Jesus Christ out there being preached in pulpits. The Jesus Christ of the scriptures, he's that rock. What will you do with him? 
The remnant submits to his word, fears him, and walks in his presence. And says with Isaiah, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him. I pray that everyone here this morning is part of the remnant. And that no one here is a part of the apostate church. Let me leave you with this word of encouragement from Augustine. He said, Oh, you Christians whose lives are good, you sigh and groan as being few among many, few among very many. The winter will pass away. The summer will come. Lo, the harvest will soon be here. The angels will come who can make the separation and who cannot make mistakes. There will be a day when there will only be a remnant and sin will be put away once and for all. And we will sing together with all of our heart and soul, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let's pray. Father, that's, we thank you so much for your grace towards us. Thank you for opening our eyes, for changing our hearts. Nothing we say here this is said in pride, in human pride. This is all a work of your grace. Thank you for giving us new birth for enabling us to see the glory of Christ in his word, for living in the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord that has transformed us. It's a gift from you, and we thank you for it. Lord, may we be faithful in continuing to proclaim the message to those who need to hear it, both inside the church and outside the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.